This Week in Photography is brought to you by Drobo. Find out how you can get your own Drobo at drobo.com slash twip. This week on TWIP, a sneak peek at Joe McNally's hot new book and iPhone 3.0, what it might hold for photographers, plus destination wedding photographer Gene Higa discusses his path to success. All that and much more coming your way next on episode 82 of This Week in Photography. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm Frederick Van Johnson. Um, on the uh, the attendee or guest host list today, I guess you guys aren't really guest hosts. You're you're just hosts. We're all just hosts. The show co-hosts. is uh, co-hosts. That's the word. Um, who was that voice? Ron Brinkman. What's going on? Hey, it's Ron. How you doing, Mr. Johnson? I am. You don't have to call me Mister. What's going on with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's just Sir Johnson. Just you know, you know, just yeah. Well, actually, Mister is kind of good. That's cool. All right. Uh, yeah, it could be. <laughs> It could be what? Of all the things I could call you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have lots of titles. You know, Mr. Is a, is a good one. Uh, we've got uh, Mr. Steve Simon coming from the East Coast. Hey, Steve. Mr. Frederick Van. Good to be on the air with you dudes. Good to be with you as well. And Aaron Mailer, as always, behind the scenes pulling strings. Hey, Aaron. Hey, guys. So today we've got a pretty exciting chock full of stuff show. So I want to jump right into it. Before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about our linking contest that is still going on. Essentially, if you link to twipphoto.com, you could win a fabulous, fabulous prize package consisting of three of Scott Bourne's 88 Secrets books. Um, yeah, one free pre- uh, premium subscription to lynda.com. Uh, the Aperture Nature Photography Contest is offering, was it $3,500 worth of prizes to each photographer? Some Ooh. big prizes. Wow. It, yeah. You know, that's, that's, and that's coming up soon, isn't it? See? It is. It is. Uh, April 29th. I think they've already made their selection for that round of the Nature uh, Photography Workshops uh, Aperture. But I think there's one more to come as well. So people will. Uh, you know, have to watch out for that. That's awesome. And I understand that I heard, you. Yeah, I was going to say there's a special guest that's going to be attending this one. And it is Say it ain't so. Frederick Van? <laughs> I will be attending the very next Aperture Nature Photography Workshop, giving my, give, giving my two cents about uh, photography, Aperture, <laughs> and I'll, I'll squeeze in some, you know, just... It, 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 there, there would probably be a little controversy because I was the product marketing manager for Lightroom. Yeah, and, I and, knew. It was and only going, a matter of time. <laughs> and I'm going on this photography workshop, but it's not yeah. like that. It's not, you we're know... Gonna, we're going to hook you up to the machine. we got a special machine which just goes hey, on your head. It doesn't hurt. Negative. It does doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt but by the end of it i think um, i think i'm one of the few people that can provide a fair and balanced opinion to the attendees on both applications well, so, we'll be the judge yeah <laughs> yeah i don't you know you don't have to put you don't have to be a pusher of either one especially when you don't work for either company you can give no, a no, fair no. and balanced opinion yeah absolutely it's it's all about uh it's all about photography and that's what that weekend is going to be so exactly yeah if any, I, I was talking to I was talking to someone yesterday about just gear and how people get mired in in Canon versus Nikon, Apple versus Microsoft, Aperture versus Lightroom, all this stuff. And uh, it, when it, the the people that make those arguments are typically, I found the folks that 
need to be out shooting more instead of getting mired in the gear that they need to create the imagery. You know, you can, you can do lots of stuff with a little gear and a little software and arguing yeah, about, especially, yeah, I mean, you know, these, anything you can buy today, hardware or software is so much better than what you would have five years ago. And there were some pretty good pictures being taken five years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's kind of silly at this point. We're really yeah. way, th- way there, down. There were, there were pretty good pictures taken 105 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, exactly. really, it's ridiculous. How many of you guys feel that you're out there shooting enough? I I, I am definitely not shooting enough lately. Uh, I'm, I feel really bad about that. And We've, I need we've got Drobos to fill up. We've got Drobos <laughs> to fill up. <laughs> no, I, I was on? thinking that exact point when I was walking to work today, walking to the office here to get to record this show, and I'm like, God, I don't think I even picked up my camera last week. I'm like, yeah. uh, that's just bad. I feel I feel guilty going onto a podcast to talk about photography, and I really don't think I picked up my camera last week. Ron, like, you're, you're, you're a hypocrite. Your camera That's what it is. is in its case <laughs> crying right now. Well, it's sitting on the uh, kitchen table, Bastard. so it's, it's ready for deployment. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, definitely got to get out there shooting more, uh, me personally, or in shooting more, especially after reading Joe McNally's book, on which we'll get to a little bit later in the show, on uh, what's it called, The Hot Shoe Diaries, an amazing book, and I, I swear, I was thinking this last night, I was reading it before I went to sleep, and and I've picked up more about my Nikon system in the first 30 pages of that book than than all, all the manuals that came with any piece of gear or any piece of kit that I have. You know, he, he just sort of explains how things work and, and not from a this is how it works and this is how you might apply it in your daily life. He, he's, he explains things from the standpoint of, hey, I'm a working pro. I've been doing this for 30 years and this is how I do it. If you want to do it your own way, but this is how I do it and it's been working for me. And it's, it's just amazing. It's an amazing sort of irreverent way of teaching people how to get the most out of their gear. So that's the kind of information, and that's why workshops can be such a great experience because, you know, I think there's a lot of things we know about how we work photographically, but then you're suddenly reading a book like that, like you described, or you're in a workshop situation, you see how other people are doing it, and it's like, ah, it, it, it's like an epiphany. You realize that, oh, this is so much easier, or so much better, um, well, well worth it, well worth it. Yeah. No, totally agree. And also, this week's show is brought to you by Drobo, the folks over at Data Robotics, makers of the award-winning Drobo. It's a storage device that guards against data loss. And for 15% off Drobo's four terabyte package, go to drobostore.com and enter the code TWIP849 or $50 off a Drobo of your your choice, you can visit uh, drobo.com slash twip. To get that 50 bucks off, visit drobo.com slash twip. And uh, just let's jump right into the news. There's a, there's a couple of news items that are really interesting, and I'm looking at one of them now that I wanted to bring up, and it, uh, it speaks to Canon in Canada. And uh, Steve, I know you have these notes as well. I'm just going to step back put my pin yeah. down and let you jump in because well, let, me, know, let me just stand up you are you our ambassador <laughs> you mentioned canada the great neighbor to the north so i'm standing up and over my heart yep. but yeah it, it's it's just uh you know kind of um what you would expect from major corporations um they they kind of look at it at this as kind of a uh, consolidation, and they expect uh, to kind of ramp up and make service better. Of course, if you happen to live in a place where um, the current service center is, like Calgary or Montreal, 
it's disappointing because, you know, I know living in New York, it's convenient to have everything at your fingertips. I mean, I actually live between B&H Photo and the Apple Store, you know, each of them three minutes away. And this is, you know, the source of my financial uh, hardships. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the convenience of having uh, a service center in your city for those photographers that live in that city are obvious. Yeah. But Canon claims that they're going to uh, consolidate and uh, ramp up uh, service. So, um, you know, for those that don't live in those places, nothing will change. In fact, Canon says things will be better. So maybe it's a good thing. Hey, we'll just have to wait and see. And when is that coming along? Um, it looks as though the end of March is the end of Montreal and Calgary service centers. And, of course, I lived in Alberta for, for 10 years. I worked at the Edmonton Journal. Which, again, you know, it's not Calgary, so we didn't have a service center. I've always been a Nikon guy, but, uh, but anyway, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll all work out, and uh, well, let's move on to the next item. Yeah, absolutely. So the next one is iStock Photo uh, has launched iStock Audio, basically an audio licensing business, or they're trying to do for sound clips what they did for photos in stock photography so they're starting off with a collection of 30,000 royalty free uh, audio tracks and uh, I think it's a it's an interesting idea uh, I don't know that I would use it because from my personal stuff <laughs> and I'll confess the the sound <laughs> the sound bits and, and sound effects that are in in iLife are all I need right now but <laughs> what what do you guys think well you know where I uh... I'm not in a in a role right now where I need this, but it's it's you know it's one of those things where at some point you can never have too many, right? And you never know what you need. Yep. So yeah, it's just a matter of uh, you know more more is better. I think we've seen a lot more of this eye stock sort of stuff happening in photography, but as these tools for doing audio kind of come together, and even audio for you know photography slideshows, I think this it kind of makes sense that they would be expanding to do that. Yeah, now, I'm I'm kind of excited, but I'm not sure I agree with you, Ron, in this more is better thing because, you know, I I recently was sort of shopping around for uh, some audio to put to my, uh, my my slideshows, and you know it takes a lot of time to go through all this stuff, and 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 when you have thirty thousand choices, and you want to you want to you know take care and and choose the best possible. Uh, soundtrack for your slideshow. Um, to this point, I've been using kind of music that I know, but I also know that you know there are copyright laws, and uh, you know depending on if you want it, if you want it to show to a bigger crowd, uh, you can't really do that, especially when you um, you know don't want people to to steal your own copyright when it comes to pictures. Yeah. But when you have all that audio, you got to go through it, and it's it's a little time consuming. And uh, well, but yeah, part of that is. Part of that's, I mean, I, you know, you can argue about whether more is better or not, but part of that is just the tools need to be there to do really good searching. And, and I agree that at some level that's not, that's not a perfected science yet by any means. Yeah. It'd be great to have some sort of edited version of, and I guess they do divide it up by different types of music, but uh, uh, yeah, I guess there's really no substitute for going through the stuff and finding really what you need. And I guess I, I, had, think I hadn't a, thought about that standpoint of of the music piece. I guess I was thinking when I think iStock audio, I don't think royalty-free music. I think sound clips of birds chirping and cars driving by and, and cheering crowds and that sort of thing, which I'm sure they have, but I hadn't considered them for just audio, for audio to put in the back of a slideshow or something like that, and that makes complete sense. Yeah. 
And I also, too, think it's definitely a growing market because as we're starting to see more multimedia functions uh, incorporated in our in our cameras, as well as the interest is growing, uh, there'll be a real need for, for finding audio that maybe you don't have the time to record yourself. So uh, I think it's going to be pretty successful. Yep. So JotNot turns your iPhone camera into a document scanner. This is not a new idea. I've seen a couple of services like this before where you could email uh, documents over to or take a picture of something like a whiteboard or something and send it to a service and they transcribe it and send it back to you as a as a really nicely formatted PDF. Uh, Aaron, what, what's different about JotNot? I know you have a little experience with it. Yeah, I was actually playing with it just a little bit ago. Um, JotNot, iPhone's a beautiful device, but I don't think anybody's going to say that the camera is going to be winning any great awards, unfortunately. And uh, JotNot's purpose is it helps with images of, of documents. I think the examples they have on the website are, are very good, where they show a, a receipt that somebody's trying to document, a Home Depot receipt that they had. Um, what it does is it does a lot of image processing to clean up and sharpen and just overall in, in, add improvements uh, to any documents that you're trying to photograph with your phone, including uh, taking out a certain amount of distortion, because uh, their example was the receipt sitting, you know, kind of catty corner at an angle to the camera, and you just draw a highlight over it, and it, it starts to correct the perspective a bit, and then process the image and make a much more readable, storable document. Yeah. Now, it doesn't do anything like OCR or anything like that, but it, I've run into many cases where I'm out and about, and I'd like to take a picture of something readable, whether it's a receipt or a barcode or something like that that I want to hang on to, and so I'm looking forward to making use of it. You know what I like on the iPhone, aside from a camera, or I was going to say a better camera, <laughs> I mean, the camera is not that bad. I mean, it, it's okay in good light, but what I'd like, yeah, what I'd like, light. yeah, in good light, in, in decent light, but what I'd, I'd like to have is a quick way to access that rather than, okay, I have my iPhone, I slide it to unlock it, I go to the page with my camera icon on it, I click it, I wait for the camera to boot up, and mm-hmm. I, you know, compose and shoot. It would be so yeah, much. I would slow. use it so much more if there was some way to quickly get into that camera and shoot yeah, things. Yeah, that, that boot time is, is really noticeable. I agree, but I don't think you're ever going to see them put dedicated buttons on the iPhone to get straight into the camera. No, there, I mean there are other you know not. camera phones uh, or phones with cameras that I think are trying to be more of a, of a hybrid sort of thing. Yeah, and I don't I don't see that coming on the iPhone, but I, I do think you know this this goes back to a really long blog post that I did not too long ago that. You know, a fully functional computer with a great display like the iPhone with a decent camera attached to it uh, is is really sort of a game-changing device. And I think, you know, I'm really hoping that the next next rev of uh, the iPhone has a better camera. But I think also some of the stuff we were hearing with changes to the SDK means that you're going to be able to get into that kind of stuff even more and do all the, the stuff we want to do. And, you know, even things like using your iPhone to tether to a regular camera or something like that and i was talking to i was talking to some friends yesterday at lunch about this and they brought up the fact okay that's great that you can now they're opening the sdk to allow you to plug the iphone into other hardware devices which makes sense for cars and all that kind of thing in in, in the medical industry etc but I made the argument as I want to plug it into my Nikon so that I can control the camera from the sure. iPhone and, and change settings and do all that stuff and maybe even get a preview back on the iPhone. And their their argument was, well, the LCD on the iPhone is not that much bigger than the LCD on the back of the camera. So what's the point? So what, what do you think about that? Well, it's more than previewing, though. I mean, I agree if it's just previewing, that might be kind of useful. But, you know, if you could do sort of 
programmatic control over your camera and do bracketed uh, exposures that are greater than what you have to dial in or or even you know eventually I'm really hoping these cameras let you do things like bracketed focusing yeah um, anything along those lines and then also you know more and more we're getting towards what's called computational photography where there's a lot of post-processing that happens on an image before it's really considered done you know the building of high dynamic range images is one of those that currently is is a post-process right but if you had a uh, the right thing sort of inserted into the the chain of operators uh, you could see where your camera would take certain photos and then there would be a little bit of image processing, you know, number crunching going on before you spit out the, the final result you were looking for at the other end. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah, I, I see it as you're, as, as you're in the field bridge, you know, to the outside world. I mean, I want to take a shot, do a minor edit, and shoot it out from wherever I am, even right. if it's over Edge or 3G. Right. As much, as much as I agree with you guys in terms of the quality of, let's say, the iPhone camera, I think... Um, uh, you know, for a lot of, for some people, uh, it's going to be disappointing when they when they come up with a a better quality, more resolute uh, camera in that iPhone. Because I think some of the stuff and the people that I've seen uh, using the iPhone um, are using it to to its ability and the sort of softness that you're getting and the the quality of kind of a, a poor resolution image can actually um, be used in your favor. And, you know, as we talk about equipment all the time, um, it's it's always important to note that, uh, you know, when you use whatever tool you have uh, to its maximum or use it for what it's 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 good with, um, you can you can get extraordinary results. And I've, I've seen some, and we've talked about in the past, some, some really serious photography done with the iPhone. And, yeah. and I bet you some of those people, um, when the new, you know, better quality one comes out, are going to be grabbing up uh, the, the, the older version because that's, that's the kind of quality that they... They want to. They want to communicate photographically. It's, with. It's, you know, your 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 Lomo Lomo cameras, right? These exactly. old cheap things with all kinds of weird artifacts in them that end up, you know, sort of conspiring together to produce this interesting imagery. Uh, and when you see an image like that, that's really soft and atmospheric, and then you you uh, uh, cut to that same scene, sharp and resolute. I mean, it's it's nothing compared to. That that softer type image. So, uh, as a photojournalist, Steve, I mean, would do you foresee a convenience of being able to hook your iPhone to your D3 and and do a basic edit and send something out to a publisher or or, or something you know on the fly? I mean, I realize a laptop with a you know some type of 3G card or something in it would give somebody that ability, but this is fits in your pocket. You know, so yeah. I was wondering well, whether you see that turnaround time being to your advantage. I think in certain uh, situations it it may just be, but I think too that um, you know the the people that are on deadline working uh, digitally, uh, you know, have kind of figured out a system that that um, allows them maybe a little bit more control. I suspect if if you can have that kind of control in a smaller package, all the better. But uh, until that yeah, but happens, really, I, uh, I mean, he, I, what. Well, my question would be, I you know, take it to that next step, which is, you know, you're you're sent out on an assignment somewhere, and your, you know, the the agency behind you or the magazine or whoever has it set up so that as soon as you trigger the shutter, the image sends straight over to them. So there's right. no sense of you get to do any kind of pre-editing or pre-processing. Sure. Well, uh, I guess the editors do a lot of the editing anyway. So yeah, yeah. but I, yeah. I think a lot of photographers would hate that because I mean, giving up your control, even in the field on deadline. They would like to have, um, you know, some sort of uh, control over what's being sent. It's not always the case, of course. At big events, um, you've got dedicated.
dedicated editors there and the photographers are just you know the the cards are being collected by runners and it's just being dumped into yeah but remember steve remember the the olden days when there was this stuff called film and you just drop it into an envelope and send it and then it was gone and you oh yeah <laughs> you no, know. it's and that's what i'm saying because it's the same thing uh photographers in the field on deadline are often just giving up their cards they don't get to see or control it yeah um but I, I imagine in an iPhone situation, um, it's not going to be such a, a, a timely big event. I mean, who knows what it's going to look like. Down but I, I know I was I was talking to a photographer that had done a lot of work for National Geographic. And sort of the, the mandate from, from National Geographic was that you don't delete any of the images on the card. They want everything you shoot to go over there. And I, you know, I, and I asked him, what, do you really do that? And he says, well, for the most part, you know, if he really, really screws up a shot and, you know, is pointing down at the ground or forgets to take the, the lens cap off or something, then he'll, he'll go through and delete that one. But generally, yeah, you know, he says that they want, they want to see everything, even if there's shots in there that, that he knows are just never going to be used. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it also, you know, when you when you were talking about National Geographic, you're talking sort of uh, the highest level, and you know that the editors there are are going to make the right decisions most of the time, and I think it's a, an element of trust there. But generally speaking, a freelance photographer is working for a variety of different clients, so um, to hand over control is never really easy because you're often disappointed with what what ends up in terms of uh, the choice. I think just, just the fact that we're having this conversation about the iPhone being used in a pro setting is kind of interesting, you know, because we haven't really, hadn't really thought about that before the iPhone 3.0 announcement that the iPhone could theoretically, and, and also, Aaron, you know, you brought up the fact that you could just send things into the cloud directly from your tethered <laughs> iPhone. You know, it's sort of, it's a game changer. You know, you could do all kinds of things now. That aside, the, the device I've wanted to see since before the first iPhone came out, just, just when we saw the phone in pre-release, was uh, those of you that have uh, photo tanks like the Epson P3000, uh, you know, nice little handheld device with a hard drive in it and a nice screen. I want to see a modular version of that created that's just the hard drive and the CF card, you know, SD card interface with the dock socket in it where I just drop my iPhone into it because the iPhone's yeah. got a beautiful display. I could use that device just to dump photos without ever attaching the iPhone if I want to do a, just a blind dump of a card. Yeah. But uh, it would. You, you think about the user interface on the iPhone and the network connectivity. I mean, it would be the ultimate photo tank, and the cost of it could be rather low. You know, yeah. because all the brains are in the iPhone. Yeah. yeah and I think now that, you know, that supposedly this next uh, release of the iPhone software will give you that programmatic access to the dock connector and at that point i think you will start to see devices you know not I'd just software money. applications but devices that that are designed with that in mind i'd put money on it that everything we've speculated about here is going to be <laughs> available by the time 3.0 software hits the market i mean the yeah. developers yeah. are already at it there's no question i don't know i don't i wouldn't be that aggressive i think they're taking notes from this podcast and going to the drawing board <laughs> <laughs> so, Aaron, Aaron, copyright yeah. that idea, Aaron, before uh, you know. I, I haven't got the wherewithal to develop the hardware. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's not an original idea. Yeah. So, Aaron, you want to you want to tell us a little bit about uh, this week's sponsor? Sure. This week's sponsor is Drobo, um, who is offering at the moment the uh, $150 off their four terabyte package, which is a 15% discount, and uh, the code for that is TWIP849, and. Uh, I have to tell you, I've just gotten into the Drobo world myself um, in the last couple of weeks and absolutely loving it. 
um, using a combination of the Drobo and the Drobo Share. And for me, it's a multifaceted kind of thing. I certainly have my personal use, just like the rest of you, for you know being my main photo storage area. But uh, it's just under three terabytes in mine to start with. But I'm also making use of it um, in testing at the college um, where I'm the network administrator because I'm seeing numerous cases uh, at the college where we can replace some, even some file servers we have out there that are, are overkill for the purpose with something that's far more stable. I like the Drobo storage capabilities far more than a lot of the file servers we deal with as far as uh, you know how easy it is to manage it and uh, how safe it's going to be. But also, we don't have, in some cases, uh, a need for a tremendous complex sharing setup in some instances and the Drobo share would be a tremendous asset for a lot of our staff members to be able to drop shares in in certain places and and one of the ones that I'm working on right now is a series of, uh, of IP based security cameras that we have that are in remote parts of the campus where the bandwidth is limited uh, coming back to the core of our network so I'm beginning to drop Drobos with Drobo shares out in those locations where they're on the high speed part of the network near the camera but the link from there back to the core of the network is very very slow yeah. so the, the Drobo is just an extremely stable, safe, reliable device we can put out there to store gigabytes of imagery for security purposes. So uh, yeah. it's one of the first applications I have for it outside of just my personal use, and uh, it's got a good future here for sure. Well, you're, you're definitely using it beyond how I use mine. Mine is definitely just a... It's a it's, I use two. Uh, right now I'm using... Yeah, I think I'm just using two right now, and one's tethered to a uh, to a Mac Mini that's serving up all my media to the house, and then another one is uh, is Photo Drobo that's serving mm-hmm. all my data to my photo editing application, which is Lightroom. So it's right. uh, yeah, it, they they work for me, and it's been fine, and it's it's sort of not to spend too much time on Drobo and make it a commercial, but it's been. But it is a commercial. But it is yeah. sort of. But it's a, it's a testimonial. <laughs> so right. it, since you know, since I put the Drobo on my desk, all those other drives that I use have gone into the closet. And I'm talking lassies and firelights and all these things yep. that I used to keep stuff on. I one day I just took turns plugging them all in and dropping stuff onto the Drobo and putting the put them in the box in the closet. So that's exactly what I spent a week doing. I had five external drives sitting here by my machine, all of which could fail on their own and I was just manually backing things between them. They've all gone in the closet and there's just the one Drobo sitting in its place. I, well, and, I don't uh, know. Why did you guys put them in the closet? I, I just ripped mine apart and put the drives into the Drobo. Oh. Well, some of mine were older. I needed SATA drives, so. And, yeah, I just yeah, ordered. I, one, of, one of them was that, too. I got done. It was one of the hardest ones to get apart and I'm, you know, cursing and finally get the thing pulled out of there and I realized it's the, the wrong uh, connector. <laughs> you just <laughs> destroyed the drive. A, would that be yeah, a Seagate-free yeah. agent? By the way, yeah, that would be actually. Yeah, <laughs> yep. I've I've taken apart two of them, and it takes a jackhammer practically to do it. So yeah, it's like prying open an an, an oyster or something. Yeah. Uh, to continue with the news, Mamiya has introduced a 33 megapixel medium format camera that produces 67 megabyte raw files and sells for. It's going to sell Ooh. in April uh, for 20k. Uh, Ron, I know you are the the big fan of more, more, more megapixels, and I say that tongue in cheek. What do you think about this thing? Well, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with, you know, it's lots of megapixels coupled with a, a large sensor. You know, I think that's the that's the distinction to be made. Is you know, I know we've kind of gone down the road of saying this this megapixel race is a bit ridiculous, and it is when you're talking about in a level playing field. But you know, if you've got a a large large sensor, you're just going to have to have a lot of megapixels on there. And I don't think this is. I should do the math, but um, I I think that for a large sensor like this is probably a reasonable amount of things. And, and that kind of goes back to why you want to shoot medium format is that you can get 
you know, very high resolution, but also high quality uh, dynamic range uh, kind of images, noise-free images in a medium format. And you get all the nice benefits of having that larger back. And that includes, for a given aperture, a much uh, more control over, over the depth of field. So you can get that really, really insane bokeh. Just like it's, you know, it's harder to get uh, a good bokeh on a crop sensor camera. You, know, you tend to have a much longer or depth of field. And so that's one of the nice things about large format is you can get really, really narrow yeah. depth of field. It really, it, it also kind of separates you from the crowd in a sense. When you're a, a high-resolution photographer using uh, a medium format digital, I mean, let's face it, when we go to a gallery uh, and we have access to the images, uh, we, we tend to go in you know, much closer than we need to, to to see the image. We're not at the proper viewing distance, and it is kind of uh, it, it's it's kind of exciting to have images that hold up even at close scrutiny. And you know, that's what these big, beautiful sensors will give you, particularly landscape photographers or people that want to retain all the detail. Um, as great as the the current uh, markets, uh, the current cameras are the DSLRs are, um, you will notice a difference when you blow something up that was created on a medium format camera. I'm, I'm, you know, generally speaking, uh, yeah, I, I had the pleasure of meeting a photographer, uh, by the name of Sarah Silver, uh, when I was at, uh, I think it was photo plus the last photo plus expo in New York. And she and I got to talk and I was looking at some of her work, which is, which is amazing. It's just this crazy, beautiful, whacked out work go check it out at sarahsilver.com but she's uh she was telling me that 99 percent of the stuff that she shoots is with a medium format and i was we just had we were just having this this friendly back and forth and i'm saying why you know why why are you shooting medium format when there's these d3s and you know large format canon cameras out here that can do this stuff why do you need the the cumbersome expense and and just overall you know, the size of a medium format and her argument was because she can zoom in closer on the images and retouch at sort of the microscopic DNA level and then zoom out and it's all good. So Steve, would you ever, would you ever consider using a medium format in your line of work or is that just way out there? I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, the reason I guess that I was uh, excited about the D3X was that it uh, approaches uh, medium format resolution in the convenience of a, a you know, a professional uh, uh, DSLR body. But absolutely, when it comes to, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, you hear, you've heard it in the past, you know, and, and students will often, you know, talk about this. You know, if you, if, you, if, if you can't make the picture better, make it bigger, and, and that makes it better, which, of course, isn't really true. And ultimately, when you look at an image uh, on the web, for example, I mean, that's a bit of a, an equalizer. But some images are made to be seen in galleries, made to be seen as huge prints, and it takes on literally another dimension when you see it in the form that it was meant to be communicated with and 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 yeah when you want to have that kind of image that's being communicated larger than life with all that kind of resolution uh absolutely i would i would love to have that unfortunately they're very expensive and you know most 
people just can't afford twenty thousand dollars for for a camera that you know is going to be outdated uh, in 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 not such a, a long a time. So the the real measure is you have to sort of spend twenty thousand dollars and know that you're either going to make that money back in the life of the camera or kind of like the stock market, which I shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. Sell it at the right time so you can get back some of the money that you've put in. Yeah, I, I think if you can embed that twenty k into your shoot fee and you're shooting that level of job, then it, yeah. it makes sense for you, but not for definitely not for people like me that don't shoot <laughs> on a regular basis, you know. But if Mamiya wanted me to try one out, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You know. I would not answer the door. But uh, the other thing I want to talk, talk about is uh, Joe McNally. I know we talked about it a bit in the beginning. Just want to touch on it again. We uh, are we I interviewed him a couple days ago and it was uh, a really good interview. I had a really nice conversation with him. He's really sort of down the earth, irreverent, knowledgeable photographer. So he uh, he and I talked for, I don't know, like 30, 30, 40 minutes. I think it was like 30 minutes about just the book, mainly about the book and about things that sort of talk into using the straw, the small strobes to get the effect that you would get with large strobes. And so I was telling the guys earlier, I, I sat down with the book and and it, it's an amazing book. So I would I would definitely try to get that book. It's uh, already sold out on Amazon and the next round is due March 22nd. So have you guys ordered your book yet? Mine's in that next round. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good book. It's definitely a good book. I, I enjoyed it. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. As a matter of fact, I'm I myself I'm in the process of writing a Nikon system book. So uh, I know that uh, Joe McNally and I've seen him and uh, I haven't actually met him, but I'm looking forward to to meeting him at some point. Um, but he is really the the uh, kind of Nikon go-to guy. He works with Nikon for Nikon, but beyond that, you know, he's really had such a, a a wonderful uh, career and he's created a, a body of work so his knowledge comes from first-hand experience and and that can't be uh, kind of uh, gleamed in any other way so I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to the book too yeah so on to the picks of the week got some interesting picks uh, let's let's kick it off with mr. Steve Simon what's what's your pick of the week um, well my pick of the week um, it may be seen as potentially self-serving but I'm encouraging everybody to get involved with this. It's, it's a contest, and it's called Name Your Dream Assignment. And basically, um, you, you go to the site, you create dream assignment, you put it up there, and you, you try and get people to vote for you. Um, I put a, an, a, a, my dream assignment is the, the grandmother's spirit, and it's uh, on grandmothers who are raising kids that uh, hurt their grandkids who have been left to them because their own children have died from HIV AIDS. It's, it's something I believe in. So I, I entered it into the fray. The odds are against you, and it looks to be a numbers game, whereas the most votes get uh, into the finals, and then from there... Um, outside people uh, pick the one that gets the $50,000 to complete your prize or so to complete your dream assignment. So basically anyone can enter. It's free. Um, and I would encourage people to go to uh, nameyourdreamassignment.com, come up with their own dream assignment. But at the same time, um, in the search thing, plug in Steve Simon, look at mine. And if you like it, uh, vote for it because you can vote for as many, as far as I can tell, of these assignments as possible. So 
everybody wins, really, in the sense that you can get the numbers up if you vote for a bunch of uh, projects that are good. Have you guys entered this thing? I have not, but I will after the show. Yeah. Definitely check it out. Ron? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ron, Ron, I just have this... No, I have this vision of you sitting back there with your arms crossed, just sort of looking curmudgeonly in your office. (laughs) It is kind of early. We we did we did we are recording an early episode today, so yeah. you know the alarm went off this morning, and I I cursed your name. Brad. I know you did. I felt it. <laughs> no, I don't usually wake up to an alarm, so the, you know this is this is pure sacrifice to me. I, wow. I'm loving it. You guys, you all move to the East Coast, and we won't have this trouble anymore. Yeah, that's, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take that extra three hours. So, uh, yeah. Ron, what's what's your pick? So I know I've talked about this before, but I don't think I've made it an official pick, and I want to because it's working very well for me. It's it's my backup strategy, or part of my backup strategy. I'm very much a, a belt and suspenders kind of guy when it comes to backing up my data. You can you're you're Larry King. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I guess that's right. The Larry King of data. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yes, there's some analogy I could make there about not wanting my pants to fall down or something, but I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to try and be too clever with it. Yeah. Now, Backblaze is part of what it is. So I back up everything to a Drobo, but then on top of that, you know, that's a local backup, and and if the house uh, were to be hit by a meteorite or something, uh, that would be bad. And so what I want to do is also make sure that I've got it backed up somewhere else, and and for me that's back it up into the cloud. And I've tried a few different ones on these, but I've settled on something called Backblaze. Uh, it is $5 per computer per month, which is a nice, reasonable baseline. And the nice thing about it is that it's not uh, its not limited to the amount of data you can put up there. It's really only limited by the sort of bandwidth of getting that data up there. So if you've got a fast connection like I do at work especially, or even at home, I have Fios. Uh, it, it'll take a while, but you can eventually get stuff up there. And I have probably um, seven or eight hundred megabytes of or gigabytes of data up in the cloud. And the, the, but the main thing about it is just you sort of say, "All right, I want my computer packed up, all of the files except for maybe this, this, and this." And it just sits there in the background and it runs and starts putting stuff up to the cloud. And as you change files, it recognizes that and it sends those up there. And once once your machine is, is backed up, then anytime you're working on a simple local file, editing a text file or something, you change it, you save it. And every few minutes, I think it is, Backblaze checks and says, oh, there's something new. And in the background is a low priority process, so it doesn't really affect your, I've never seen it affect my performance. Uh, it will squirt that latest delta back up to the cloud as well. And the thing about it is it's just, it's, you don't have to think about it. You set it up, and you're done. So I, I'm pretty happy with it. The one question that I know comes up a lot is sort of security concerns about yeah. putting your data up somewhere on the cloud. And uh, Backblaze encrypts the files locally on your PC uh, before it sends it up there, and you can you can give it your own key. You can you can give it the encryption key to do that. And so I can't really conceive of anything short of really intense hacking capabilities that would make that data not be secure. My the, the I I want to try that. Definitely gonna I'm definitely gonna hook that up in the next day or so. But the one concern that I have is 
the fact that I'm portable. So I carry my MacBook Pro with me back and forth to work, to Starbucks. So it's very rarely sitting dormant for it to for backblaze to do its thing on there now on the mac mini with all my media i could theoretically do it there but we're talking about terabytes of data that would have to be pumped up there and it's not really i don't see that being as critical as the data that's on my macbook pro so how would i get around that you know i I mean you know do do your macbook pro presumably sit somewhere overnight right and you can leave it turned on yeah. It so, is. you know, I mean, the point is, once you once you get the bulk of it up there, then the delta is usually very small, and that's all. I mean, I do the same thing. I carry my my MacBook around with me all the time, but you know, between having it sitting in my office at at work and I'm off to a meeting or something, and it's sitting there chugging away, or overnight, yeah, it it, it mm. took a while to get it up there. It probably took uh, over a week or so to get everything up there. But at this point, then it's just deltas, and very small files tend to just you know you don't even think about it. I don't I don't think about it anymore. It's just I know it's up there. I will occasionally do a spot check or or there's a the other thing that it does is that it has uh, it's not just the latest file. It actually keeps a short history as well. I think it's about a month. So if there's something that I know was backed up and then I've deleted it, and a couple of days later I realize that I shouldn't have deleted that, I can often go back and pull it off of Backblaze that way as well. Yeah. Would it make sense? I'm just reaching here. Would it make sense to say if someone had a time, not time, what is it? Time capsule and worked mm-hmm. into their workflow, backing up the time capsule up to Backblaze? I think, yeah, I think you do that. It, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just another drive, right? Because then you have, you know, if your time capsule is using a Drobo as its source, so you're safe in the Drobo, then you have the time capsule that lets you go back in time. And if your house yep. get hits, gets hit by that meteorite you're talking about, then you can pull everything back down from the cloud. So you have sort of triple, triple redundancy there. Yep. I think it's worth mentioning too. To add to what Ron was mentioning, that you can, um, they have a service that uh, obviously you can download any of your files that you need if you lose something. But if you were to have a catastrophic failure and you had ten, you know, tens or hundreds of gigabytes of data up there, getting that data back down, they offer a service where they'll send you DVDs or hard drives uh, preloaded with your data, like with an overnight shipment. That's cool. So if if you had some kind of catastrophic, oh, I need 300 gigabytes of data back and I need it right away. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to pay for that service, obviously, but that's kind of the whole idea too. Is that uh, it? Probably know, be covered. cheaper. Probably be cheaper than going to someplace like Drive Savers that would charge you as much as your computer's worth to get your data oh, back. Certainly. I'm sure. Certainly. Yeah. So, Aaron, what, what's your pick? Um, my pick uh, is going to actually be a, a museum this week. Um, uh, my dad and I uh, had been talking about doing this for years and uh, finally took a day yesterday or Wednesday. And uh, we went to Roanoke, Virginia, which is a little over an hour from where we live. Um, my parents live 20 minutes south of me. And uh, so grabbed dad and we went on out to Roanoke, and which anybody who's familiar with Roanoke, Virginia knows that it's 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 a classic rail town. It's a home of North, Norfolk Southern. The whole town's history is really tied, tied to the rail history. Um, and they have the museum there for a gentleman named O. Winston Link, uh, who died uh, just a number of years ago, just a few years ago. But in between 1955 and 1960, I believe, are the years, he embarked on a personal project to photograph pretty much the 
end of the steam era. And Norfolk Southern was the last railway at the time to still be manufacturing and actively using steam trains while the rest of the industry was, was switching over to, uh, to diesel at that point. And uh, he did a few test photos, just, again, his own enjoyment, and shared them with Norfolk and Western, who's, who's what they were called at the time. And uh, they fell in love with it and gave him basically carte blanche access to the entire railway for the, for the duration of this five-year project he worked on. And the amazing thing, I guarantee you people, whether you, people have seen his photos, whether they associate his name with them or not, he's got the quintessential railway photos of steam trains, um, predominantly black and white, and most of them and his most dramatic ones were all taken at night. Uh, so his imagery is just stunning when you look at it. I mean, we're talking the 1950s here, setting up nearly a mile of cable in a lot of cases, tying together huge arrays of strobes, which were at the time were the little GE screw-in, you know, one-shot, one-off bulbs uh, with a, a, a large format view camera. And he would have to do a tremendous amount of planning to just visualize what his shot was going to be and set up the lighting. And we're talking lighting entire steam trains, you know, on bridges with people in the foreground and just incredibly dramatic lighting so yeah. his, his images are captivating and to its credit the museum is absolutely fantastic and i found out while i was there that it apparently is the only museum in the country dedicated to a single photographer's work which i thought was pretty unique wow so uh, a beautiful presentation wonderfully curated museum and i will mention one one other quick thing before i wrap up um I always appreciate a good kind of multimedia presentation if it's subtle and if it if it's not just there to be you know kind of a whiz bang presentation. Uh, one of my interests, obviously, from a technical standpoint with his photography, was how he did his lighting setup. Well, they have all of his notebooks that he took, and he wrote copious notes. He had an engineering background, so he has diagrams of all of his lighting setups for all of these dramatic photos he's taken. So they have a nice presentation with a, a large projection in front of you and a touchscreen, and you select one of three of his famous photos. And they bring the photo up in front of you, and they have evened the entire photo out to just be a very even gray. And then his notebook page comes up on the display, and you're able to toggle on and off all the different light banks in any order that you want with your finger. And they reveal then the actual exposure. So you can see how a complex photo like that is assembled and turn on and off all the different angles. Yeah. You know, the catch lights and the highlights in the background. So really encourage people to do it. I realize that, you know, you probably need to be somewhere near the area to go. But if you're in Virginia or coming through Roanoke, put it on the list. It is well worth seeing that's cool and we'll put links to that uh in the show notes so you can definitely if you can't get over there at least you could uh you could lust for it from afar the museum actually has digitized his entire uh collection and it's all available online so you can certainly peruse the photos Mm -hmm. you don't need to go so (laughs) moving on to oh my i forgot i have a pick too i have a quick pick it's called dr doff it's a educational depth of field calculator and you can check it out at www.fosmo that's p-h-o-z-m-o.com we'll put a link to it in the show notes and what it is is it's it's if you're just getting your brain around uh bokeh and the and depth of field and and how all this stuff works together it's an application that you install on your iphone that lets you simulate different situations using different lenses, different depth of field settings, uh, different fields of view and that sort of thing and get a really accurate understanding of what happens when you have shallow versus deep or uh, depth of field. And uh, it's a pretty cool application. I think it's like eight bucks or something through the iTunes store. So definitely check that out. So Aaron, you want to uh, you want to talk about the photo assignment and current poll? Uh, certainly. We're in uh, week three of our current assignment, and uh, you can debate whether it's complex or complex, but that's our single word assignment this week. And uh, and I will mention our, our poll results from last week. Um, we we kind of missed a week in there, got a little behind, so... 
I think we finally got it straight. Um, the current poll was, uh, how old were you when you got into photography? And as it turns out, the majority, 34.5% of, uh, of our listeners were in their teens when they got into photography, uh, followed by people in their 20s at 27%, uh, 12 or younger at 20%, 11.5% um, in their 30s, 3.5% in their 40s, and a mere 1% in their 50s, 0.3% in their 60s or beyond. So uh, hmm. I, was, I was surprised yeah. at how people uh, get into it late in life i was expecting mm -hmm. more i think yep. you know you, you, you well. get to a stage, yeah you get to a stage where you've got some disposable income and uh, i'm surprised more people don't take it up when they retire actually i would yeah, yeah that's that's shocking to me as well because my my well I, I wouldn't say shocking but my my dad was sitting in the studio last week when we recorded twip and he's retired he's 73 years old and he uh that's what he that's what he does now he plays around he uh hangs out he's living in the suburbs of las vegas on the henderson area and he and his buddies go out and shoot all the time and they import their photos they play with them they have little meetings and 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 talk about the uh just different photographic techniques he just heard about twip surprisingly it, it, enough but, it occurs but, to me too that uh, a while back we actually did a poll just asking our listeners how old they were and, and i realize this isn't going to be statistically accurate to compare but uh, i'll try and compare those later and see if i can make a little correlation between you know because the question here is how old were you when you got into photography mm -hmm. so you know the majority said they're teens but how many of our listeners are maybe you know in their 40s at this point so it'd be interesting yeah. to kind of compare I, those numbers yeah i think a lot of people that get into it later sort of are rekindling with something that they either wanted to do or had a little bit experience with uh, when they were younger yeah um, I myself was born with a little fiber optic lens in my belly button when they cut the cord, so <laughs> that I started is, really wow. young you are actually a Cylon aren't you Steve Simon <laughs> <laughs> Some bizarre pre-birth imagery probably exists <laughs> yeah sorry for the visual guys <laughs> we can always count on you I to shake it up a little bit Steve <laughs> <laughs> I will say I do want to just say that I think that's that's probably a really excellent kind of tip for people that are trying to figure out something to buy their their parents or grandparents even and and it's not something I would have thought of but just giving them a camera that's got some decent controls over it and saying why, why don't you go check out some photography yeah and if you want to yeah, you want to you're going to you want to be nice to Steve Simon, you could just get him a D3X and you know be be, be nice to your elders, right Steve? <laughs> You know, I, I think you were too. A bell button cam. You know, when you when you see people pick up a camera for the first time, and you know, I think a lot of us that have done this a long time, you know, we know too much, and that innocence of vision when you have a simple tool that you pick up and you just start using uh, the images that you get often, and that's why you see it when kids are handed cameras. You get some really astonishingly interesting and beautiful images so um you know in some ways i think as a photographer i'm trying to and i've said it before get back to that innocence of vision i mean now i've been doing this a long time and i've learned certain good and bad habits but that pure just kind of reaction and uh, reacting and and the equipment now allows that and and i think it's it's a good thing to to not so much think about it but just you know feel your way through and just just shoot and see what happens so the new poll that's coming up uh uh, when is this well Aaron you can tell us when this poll is going to be up after I read it but the topic um, it's the what topic genre got you into photography or are you into and uh, the choices are landscape nature portraiture people still life abstract scenic 
travel uh, documentary wedding or the final choices i shoot everything it's all good so when when is this one going up aaron um we will get that up on the blog this weekend uh so it should be online for people to be answering by the time they hear this podcast and and this was uh ron's uh mention at the end of last week's poll was uh, that we should pose this question so I, I hope i put enough topics and genres in there to do it justice excellent so now we'll uh we've got a, a, an excellent interview with gene higa he's uh, a san francisco-based destination wedding photographer and uh, had a great discussion with him about marketing yourself building your brand and all that good stuff so he's uh he's our guest for this week and I'm here with San Francisco-based uh, wedding photographer, destination wedding photographer, Gene Higa. He, Gene was voted by American Photo Magazine as one of the top ten wedding photographers in the entire world last year. Uh, there was, Gene was telling me there's some controversy around that, but that I, <laughs> I think it's well-deserved. I was looking at his website, and there's some amazing work there that you can check out at GeneHiga.com. Hey, Gene, thanks for coming on This Week in Photography. Hey, thanks so much, Fred. Um, I'm really, really blessed to be here. Thank you. Cool. You're you're absolutely welcome. Um, I want to I want to start off by just sort of this timely. Hopefully, this this podcast will be out before WPPI. Most likely, it may be out during it. But uh, you are you're speaking at WPPI Wedding and Portrait Photographers International in Vegas this year, correct? Yes, um, we're actually going to be speaking on Wednesday the 18th. Uh, we'll be in Studio B, and we'll be speaking between uh, 2:30 and 4:30 in the afternoon. Excellent. Last year, I, yeah, I think I was I was looking on YouTube and I saw some videos, inter- some video interviews of you uh, mm-hmm. talking about how many people were packed into your room <laughs> last year. Are you are you expecting the same turnout this year? <laughs> I'm praying for the same turnout this year. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, just you just give stuff away. That's the secret, dude. Give stuff away. <laughs> there's like there's like two boxes of free stuff by my door that I have to ship tomorrow to get it over there. Awesome. There you go. Yeah, bribery always works for the WPPI crowd. That's what I tell all of my brides. <laughs> bribery. So let, let's just jump right into it. Uh, I'm really. You know, I was talking to somebody earlier today about this interview, and I was saying. You know, I love This Week in Photography, and I love our listeners, but this interview is selfish. This is for me. So I'm going to pick your brain about the stuff that I want to know, and hopefully the crowd will get something out of it. <laughs> so, so first of all, I just want to know how, how Gene Higa got started in photography, like the hows and the whys. Um, gosh, I have been around the wedding industry for about 13 years now. Uh, started my business in the year 2000 on my birthday. Um, I went to school for photography, took um, beginning photography classes, and um, we would critique photos every now and then. And I had a body of work that I would show to the class. And during the critique, my um, professor pulled me out of the class and said, Gene, your photography is really strong. I want you to do something with it. Um, I want you to, you know, I want you to do photography for a living. And he says, you know, I asked him, I said, what do you do? Give me some direction. He says, hey, I'm a wedding photographer. Come with me Um, over the weekend. Carry my bags. Um, I can show you what I do. I said, great. So I went with him that weekend, um, fell in love with it. He gave me 150 bucks for the day. I thought, this is great. So a little extra cash to buy some film, develop it, shoot some stuff, and kind of develop my art. So I did that with him for the year. Um, Then the following year, his buddy needed help in the studio. And um, I said, well, you know, this is perfect. You know, I could learn the business side. I had a guy who was out on the field, so I kind of had the best of both worlds. Um, The 
the guy who was working in the studio, I would help him put together albums. So back then we were actually carding negatives, six by six, um, two and a quarter negatives, carding negatives, making three and a half by fives, doing matted albums, um, wow. art leather, and you're, just you're speaking keeping. you're speaking Greek to most of the the photographers <laughs> out there. Like, what? How many megapixels is that? <laughs> None. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry, go, go ahead. I no, had to stick that okay. in there. That's okay. Well, you know what I mean? Just changing Hasselblad back, shooting 220 rolls, getting 24 shots. You know, we were doing that whole bit. And um, we were at a wedding in Pebble Beach, and I told the guy, I said, you know, I think I can do this. Give me a camera. Let me take a shot. And um, I took a meter reading off the grass. Um, so it was a F11, 250 at 400 ISO. Took one shot. My hand was literally just shaking. So I took this shot of her walking down the steps. Um, you could see all of Pebble Beach. And that, that shot actually hangs above my desk today. Wow. It's, it's the inspiration for me to kind of remember where I came from and um, kind of remember, you know, get back to the basics, right? Mm -hmm. So I did that with him. And then uh, at night I was working for Bay Photo Lab. I ran the pro department. So I would see when we would go out and shoot these weddings, I would um, look through the lens, check out his um, settings on the camera, write down the frame number. And then when the film came into the lab, I would pull it off the shelf, develop it and print it. So I see, knew exactly what he was doing, what the fill flash was like, what the lens selection was. So I knew exactly how to get a good exposure. So I was kind of just self-taught in that way. So um, in falling in love with wedding photography, I just I decided that you know this is what I wanted to do. The girl I was seeing at the time had a girlfriend that was getting married. She said, "Hey, Gene, I know you're into photography. I don't have a lot of money, but I would love for you to come shoot my wedding." I said, "Great." Went out there, shot the wedding. I took 20 images that I truly love from the wedding. I printed those inside the lab, mounted them, matted them, and then I would call around coffee houses. I called a bunch of coffee houses and I said, hey, I know you guys um, take art from artists. Would you guys be open to showing some wedding photography? And everyone was very open to it. So I set myself up with 12 um, coffee houses throughout the year and I would tour these prints around. So every time that I got a call for a wedding, I would meet at that coffee house. So basically it became my studio and I had these four by six cards and I was charging like $9.95, $12.95 and $15.95 for weddings. And my business just kind of skyrocketed from there. And um, I mean, that was eight years ago. And uh, we went from very small backyard weddings to now traveling the world and doing weddings all over the world. That's that's brilliant. <clears throat> that's that's awesome. So using using local coffee houses, Starbucks or whatever as your... Yeah, as your studio and as your sort of reception, let me show you my workroom. That's yeah, you know, because I would always try to get the table that was kind of in the center of the coffee house mm -hmm. because you always had great music, you always had something to drink, you always had like little snacks. But if you had a table that was in the center of the coffee house, everyone else kind of, I guess, they kind of overheard your conversations, right? yeah. And so, so they'd be like, Hey, I got a friend who's getting married, can I have your card? That's great. Marketing through osmosis, right? <laughs> <laughs> Why the heck not, right? Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> now, were you, were you, when you're in the coffee houses, were you bringing a laptop in there, or did you just bring a book and some materials, or what, what was the flow from, hey, I, I'm Gene Higa, you know, to, to buy, <laughs> and thanks for your check? <laughs> you, 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 you want me to be honest? Um, I had one album. I couldn't afford a laptop at the time. Um, I had one album, and I... 
and I made eight by 10 prints. I didn't have a big body of work. So I had eight by 10 prints and you know what I would do? I would hold the album and I would tell stories and I would talk really slowly. Oh my God, look at this dress. Oh my God, look at this moment. Oh my God, don't you love black and white? And I would tell all these stories and people would love this. And they were like, this guy's really passionate about what he's doing. He gets it, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and it worked for me. And to this day, I still show prints one at a time. I show bigger prints. I show smaller prints, four by sixes, and I tell stories. That's and that's always worked for me, you know. Yeah. So you're so even to this day, you're not you're not doing a slideshow on a laptop or or projecting when they come into your studio or anything. Um, I initially show um, movies on on the plasmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we do impact them in that way. But as the consultation go, um, starts. You know, going through, I just really show big work. So I tell stories and it just works for me. Yeah. You know, I just want to make a connection with my client and see if they get my photography. If they get it, then they hire me. Well, if, they're, if they come to your door, I've seen pictures of your, uh, your, your studio. If they come in, then you pretty much got them at that point, right? So you're just, yeah. you're no they're longer like, fishing. You're just cleaning, the, cleaning and filleting them for a serving. <laughs> little salt, little pepper. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Well, you know what? I mean, it, it it sends a message that this guy's serious. It sends a message that, hey, this is what he does for a living, and he's not a weekend warrior. Yeah. Which is, there's nothing wrong with that, but, I mean, this is what he does full time. Right, yeah. So the weekend warriors just have to work a little harder to prove that, you know, and just to prove that they're not going to screw up the wedding. So I think I think a lot of it is when you go into or when people are considering you for a wedding, a percentage of their decision-making process is based on, is this guy competent, you know, and, and yeah. is he worth worth this fee that he's charging to capture this once, you know, theoretically, once-in-a-lifetime event, you know, yeah, I mean, right. it's, it's insurance, right? Yeah, it's a little insurance, and you kind of have to pre-sell them as they come in, right? Yep. You got to have to pre-sell them on the blogs, pre-sell them on the websites, your marketing materials, and once they walk in the door, hey, a little bit more credible, you're in a prestigious neighborhood, and hey, I'd love to sit down and talk to you. That's awesome. And, you know, people usually spend maybe two hours with me just sitting down and we're just talking. You're just talking over coffee or, 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 or tea or whatever? And yeah, I just, just, I a just hang out. Yeah, it's a conversation. And I hang out and I'm myself. I'm not trying to put on this show for people. I'm like, Kate, hey, this is what I do. And, you know, and if you like what I do and if you like who I am and I can take care of you and your friends and family, hire me because I'm going to be great for you. So let's talk a little bit about that. So. I was watching one of the videos, which is really great on your website, by the way. The, I Thank think you. it was produced by, by Cinematic Studios. Mm-hmm. Ron and, Dawson? Yeah, Ron Dawson. And it was, uh, you, were, you were talking, and, and sort of the, the, the theme through the video was Dare to be Different. I think that's the one I was watching. You were, mm-hmm. you were talking about uh, how you were different, and you <clears throat> challenged brides and grooms to think differently about their their wedding experience you want to expand on that a little bit you know the whole idea behind dare to be different was that we were asking our clients to kind of step out of the box because as wedding photographers you're getting calls for the same locations every weekend especially if you're in small town usa or if you i mean maybe you're in a big city but you're getting calls for the same locations Mm -hmm. and so i didn't want to get locked into that i didn't want to as an artist as a photographer i always wanted to shoot something different i always wanted to step it up a little bit and get images that my competitors if you if you will that weren't getting so by asking our clients to do that and if they were okay with that shooting in alleys shooting in different locales that weren't wedding locales right Mm -hmm. i remember this one time we were in a limousine and i was with the bridal party 
and we went out to the Legion of Honor, which is a very nice wedding location here in San Francisco. Um, I looked out there and I said, look at all those brides out there. And I said, I looked at my bride, I said, look, you see all those brides out there? If you want your wedding photography to be just like theirs, let's go out there and do that. But if you want something different, let's go on the other side of town. And she said, no, I don't want my stuff to look like that. I want it to be different. And I said, let's go. And the whole bri bridal party agreed. And that wedding got published because it was so different. And it just worked for us. I thought, wow, we're on to something here. That's great. So instead yeah. of, instead of hey, I want a shot with the Golden Gate Bridge in the background, you're getting yeah. shots of, hey, look at this beautiful bride in front of a graffiti wall or, or some other background, alternative background like that, right? Exactly. And the bridal party loved that, and they were like really jazzed about it. Hey, this guy really takes risk. And I thought, hey, if they're going to do it in San Francisco, maybe they'll go around the world and do it. And um, it worked. It really did work. We hit... 14 countries in 2006 and ever since then we've taken about 10 destinations a year wow that's amazing so it's been, yeah it's been an incredible ride so talk about that a little bit the the, the whole idea of the destination wedding <clears throat> what is so for people that don't know what it is uh what's <clears throat> a destination wedding and and why is it why is it different than anything else um it's it's different in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, brides are actually going out and they're actually spending, they're taking their wedding budget that they would do locally and they're taking 50 or, or 100 or less people with them to exotic locales. I had a bride here in San Francisco. She was getting married and she said, um, I have a 300 count guest list. I said, wow, that's a pretty good sized wedding. And she says, I know it's getting a little crazy. Everyone's got their hands into my wedding. Um, I just want to hire you. I love your work, blah, blah. I said, great, let's do it. Um, I didn't even send the contract out. She wrote me back and she said, Gene, we've decided to move the wedding to Tuscany and we're taking you with us. What's it going to cost me? And I was like, dang, you know, I, was, I wrote like, in, like 72 font, D-O-N-E with an exclamation mark. <laughs> And she called me back a couple minutes later and she says, this is great. You know, we'd love to do it. And um, the destination, way, I mean, I guess it, de it depends on how you define it. For me, I don't define destination inside the U.S. If I go to New York City, it's not a destination wedding for me. Um, if I go to Singapore, if I go to South Africa, if I go to Australia, those are just destinations for me. Um, I like to go outside of the country. Um, I have shot across the U.S., but for me, I like to kind of go a little deeper, get into Santorini, Greece, India, things like that. So the international sort of exotic places are what defines it as a, as destination for you? Yeah, because I, if you think about it, if I'm in New York City, I mean, I'm shooting in Times Square and there's all those brilliant New York City wedding photographers out there shooting in that locale as well. So yeah. I mean, it doesn't make me look any different. But hey, when you get a call for Ludhiana, India, I mean, that's a six-hour bus ride from Delhi. Wow. Yeah. You know? So, that's, so that's would it be safe it. to say that if I was to shoot a wedding, I'm in San Jose right now, so if I was to shoot a wedding in, uh, say, San Francisco, I wouldn't be able to call that a destination wedding? Um, I guess you could. I mean, it's up to you. It's a different city. <laughs> hey, however you want to play it, Fred. <laughs> or it's my destination, so therefore it's, it's a destination wedding. <laughs> it's yours. Yeah, I'll be all, I'll be all over. I say, Fred was shooting in San Francisco, man. That guy's going crazy. Exactly. <laughs> so, are you are you shooting destination weddings exclusively now, or if somebody in the local area in the Bay Area calls you, do you will you shoot that wedding as well? You know, um, to be honest, it was my tactic to 
to reach a higher end market in San Francisco. Ah, okay. So it was, hey, this guy's trusted enough to go to Santorini, Greece. I can trust him to walk down to, you know, the Federal Reserve in uh, downtown San Francisco. So it's kind of my tactic to reach a higher end market. So the niche actually just set me apart from everybody else. I was the only one in San Francisco. Well, I, was, I shouldn't say that I was the only one, but I was one of the photographers in San Francisco that marketed their business around destination weddings. What it did for me is it gave me amazing images from all over the world. Um, it got me a lot of press. Um, it got me really recognized with wedding vendors. Um, you know, I would go to parties for um, weddings, wedding vendors here in San Francisco, and the one question I would always get asked, hey, Jean, where have you been? Oh, we were just in South Africa. This is what we're doing want to see some images check on my iphone and it was like this conversation piece and it was like people were talking about where we were going hey gene i heard you're in south africa i'd love to see those images great i'd love to share them with you guys you know so it's kind of this i wanted to give people something to talk about our business and what it helped us was hey gene do you want to do a wedding here in grace cathedral yeah i'd love to do that and so now it's not a question of what we charge it's more of like can we get you there wow you know i'm not trying to brag or anything but i mean that, that was my tactic, and it, and it worked for me. It really so, did. so it did work. So you, you were able to penetrate that high-end market in the Bay Area? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess it, define, it depends on how you define your high-end. How do you define right? high-end? Um, I define high-end as a bride that will let me do my art and pay my price. Okay. Right? Because I don't want a bride that's a high-end bride that doesn't get my work. Yeah. Because, you know, and when it's all said and done, they have to get my work. So, so let's let's talk about that a little bit a, a little bit about that's a good segue into technique so when you say your work you know there there's over the past couple several years there's been the rise in the wedding photojournalism sort of genre of wedding photography mm -hmm. um, is what how do you define the the Jean Higa look in, in photography you know I I have a lot of color in my photography um, I'm very traditional I'm not a photojournalist um, but I have amazing, strong portraits. And that's what my brides want. They want nice, strong portraits. So I always, that was the one thing that we used to always battle. Hey, I need more time to do your portraits. Hey, the, the half hour that you're giving me in the timeline wasn't enough. Now we're getting two, three hours to do our thing. You know, so for my style, it's a lot of color. It's really strong composition. And um, it's got a lot of personality. But yeah, that's for for the is that for the engagement shoots or for the actual wedding itself? That's for the wedding. Um, the engagement shoots are uh, the same thing. I'm getting about two hours with my clients. Wow. Yeah, I, I feel very blessed. I mean, they're really just kind of giving me the time, and they're open to seeing each other before the the actual ceremony. So, and plus, we're we're planning all this out throughout the year. You know, hey, since it's going to be at this time, you guys got to step out. Please don't plan anything in your reception because I'm going to pull you off for like an hour. Right. So it's not a surprise, and you're not you're not the annoying photographer that's messing up their day. It's already yeah. it's already in the back of their head of what they need to do. Yeah. Hey, Gene, don't forget, remind us we got to go out there and do those portraits. Of course, I'll be right back. Yeah. You know, get all set up, and then we go out there and just do some killer stuff, and they're thrilled. And people want nice photography, you know. People want to spend time with their family and friends, but they really, they want nice photography. People, they want to bring something back home that they can cherish for the rest of their lives. Right. You know? So if you're, you know, so speaking of that and doing your technique of you know, lots of lots of color and your 
portraiture technique. How do you how do you capture that? What kind of gear are you using, and what kind of lighting? What's your what's your hardware technique? Um, right now, okay, in my gear bag, I have two bodies. I have the five D bodies. We haven't upgraded to the five D Mark Twos just yet. Um, I'm not sure I will. Um, I love my five Ds. Um, they work for me. Uh, I have a fifty millimeter one point I have a 16 to 35 that I rarely take out. My number one lens is my 24 to 70. I have a 70 to 200. I have an 8512. I have a couple of flashes, um, some quantum batteries that I keep on my hip. They're just the really small ones, and um, some cords. And I use Gary Fong's uh, cloud to pop a little flash in there. But that's really it. Um, everything kind of fits in a uh, think tank, mm-hmm. and we use the smaller think tanks. Um, I'm a big fan of like less is more. I don't want to, you know, when I'm shooting, I have two camera bodies on me. I have one with the 24-70, the other one with the 70-200. to And sometimes we use video lights, but not that much. I'm going all for natural light. I like to use window lights, and I like to use fast lenses. Now, you, you mentioned you mentioned the, the think tank. What is, what's a think tank? Think tank was a, a bag built by photographers. Um, it was... A couple of photographers went out there and developed this bag that was very photographer friendly. So the bag that I use is, uh, I think it's called a Speed Stream. I'm not, don't quote me on that, but it's, um, it has all the perfect compartments. It's got the uh, the cord for the uh, to lock it up onto a table. It's got a cord to lock up the laptop. It's got a space for the laptop. It's got a tripod thing on the side, and it's got removable wheels that you can replace. Um, it's all TSA qualified. Oh, wow. It's just a really amazing bag, and it's really built really nicely. Wow. You know? Yeah, so I've been using this bag for quite some time. I've, we've taken this bag all over the world. I mean, it's been on the top of a bus for like six hours. It's, it's been wonderful to us. So when you so back to the gear thing. So you're you're shooting with five Ds and limited flash. When necessary, you'll pop you know something through a, through a Gary Fong light sphere or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's pretty much it. You're just you're just in there, and and the rest is technique and 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 your finger on the on the shutter button, right? Yeah, I'm I'm not um, I'm not setting up lights inside the corners i'm not i'm not setting up any extra strobes it's all on camera for me um yeah even for the reception and the first dance and all that it's it's just all you and the camera yeah it is um just me and the camera and then i for first dance we go with the 50 millimeter 1.0 and we shoot into videographer's light that gives us flare and it also uh, gives us some nice light and then if i need a little extra light um i drag i drag the shutter a little bit Maybe I'll drag it down to a 30th or a 15th, but I don't shoot anything over 800 ISO. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and you're I, you're happy with that 5D? I love it. I mean, this, yeah, it's been through war. <laughs> That's great. I mean, you know, the the fact that you're not planning on getting the new Mark, the, you know, what is it, the Mark II, 5D Mark II? The, the 5D Mark II, yeah. If, if the fact that you're not planning on getting one of those puts you in a different price bracket in terms of getting additional five d's right you could probably buy two more now because the price is going to plunge exactly i could stand on them while i'm shooting the ceremony you know what i mean yeah it's just a disposable camera now yeah you know the thing i don't know i mean i'm not a video guy you know i'm just not i'm a photographer and yeah. i, I want to just shoot stills what do you think you know? about that, though? We were talking about that on the show a couple of weeks ago and, and sort of the movement into, okay, now all these these digital SLRs are shooting high-definition video. Does this mean that photographers are going to need to add the Premiere and Final Cut Pro to their bag of tricks, you know, as well as Photoshop, Lightroom, and Aperture, or or what? What do you think about that? You know, I, I have to be honest. I mean, 
I, I don't want to spend any more time behind my computer than I have to. Mm. You know, I think there are people out there that are really amazing at video, and I, I would hire them. You know, I, I don't want to, I don't know. I mean, for me, I guess, really, I go back to that whole less is more thing. We we shoot our weddings on Saturday, and they're up by Friday. They're up by the following Friday, so I got to get this stuff done. Um, I don't know, the whole production thing, the whole learning curve, and I, I understand that this is going to open a lot of doors and a lot of possibilities for people, and they, they can add it into their package, and, and God bless them for that. But for my business, I, I, I don't know. It's just not for me. I'm not a video guy. I'm a photographer. Yeah. Yeah, you so know, so so master so you think master your trade and leave leave the other forms of art to other people that are masters of that? Yeah, man, I've seen these video guys come in there with there's a group out of Canada. They're, they're called Still Motion and they're amazing at what they do. Yeah. There's no way I I could touch that. Right. You know, I mean that's their thing. Hey, go hire those guys, you know. I can't do what they do. You yeah. know. I I just I want to be a photographer and that that's just that's my thing. So, so when you're when you're at a wedding and you're you know you're in the fray and you got the nervous bride and the crying mom and the, the dad and all that, are you is it just you in there like a you know just like an operative? You're just Gene Higa in there shooting, or do you have people around you that are helping you, or how, how what's that flow? Um, I always have one assistant with me. Um, assistant second shooter the second shooter really only shoots during the ceremony um they're just operating that camera that's um down the center aisle mm-hmm. and that's just tripod i said hey all i need is the ring vows and kiss and then the rest you can go away so they're basically operating that camera on a wider angle lens and that's really the only time we pull up that 16 to 35 um so she kind of operates that and then carries my bags and make sure that the, all the cards are in the right place and uh, make sure that you know, once if we're doing ceremony portraits, um, I mean, not ceremony, portraits after a ceremony on the altar, make sure that the lens is correct, make sure that the lighting is correct. And uh, once I go back there, I can just, you know, go ahead and take a couple shots and get people going. But their job is to help me focus on the bride and groom, and their job is to kind of help me stay in the moment. Yeah, right. right. Wow. But for the rest of it, you're, you're, so they're taking the pressure off in the background, but you are the star in terms of the photography and you're, you're the primary actor in the play going out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of the guy that goes out there and does it, you know, because it's my name on the door and it's, you know, they're hiring me for, for what I'm doing and I don't really show any assistant shots. I said, Hey, you know, they're going to get a couple shots and yeah, they're going to follow you down the aisle and they're going to give me that wide shot of you walking down the aisle. Just like when I did, when I took that very first shot, that's all I use my assistants for. Yeah. But the rest of the time, you know, it's me in front of the camera. It's me taking care of the family and friends. You know, are I you, like to be that guy. Are you are you doing the photojournalism style of of wedding photography, and that you know you or that nothing is posed and you're the fly on the wall, or <laughs> or are you doing the group shots and the mom and the the Photoshop composite of the bride looking down from the clouds and all that. <laughs> <laughs> What? what, what? You, you know me well. <laughs> I'm just asking. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that photography, okay. but I don't do that. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a photojournalist. I, I'm too loud. <laughs> yeah, I, I talk too much. You, you interact with your scene, fun. right? It's too much. You, you, you can't be a photojournalist because that means you're in the shadows. You're, but, you're. I'm sorry, but if you guys are dancing on the dance floor, I'm gonna get a little jealous, and I'm gonna get on there with you. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's just, I, that's just me. 
you can't have fun at a wedding and not have me involved. I got to get on there, you know. I I like to have fun. I like to talk to people. I like to enjoy myself at a wedding. You know, eight hours, ten hours, it goes by quick. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's. It awesome. does. But yeah, I'm not a photojournalist. I, yeah, I, I get those moments. So you yeah. are. Are you doing the pose shots though? Oh yeah, I, I I do the mom and the mom and you know I I'm a traditional photographer. You know I go out there and I do the one on ones with the bridesmaids. I do the one on ones with the the parents and I do my family combinations. Yeah, I do all that stuff. I actually really enjoy the family portraits. Really? Because I, I was speaking to Dennis Reggie, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, another prominent wedding photographer. And I've heard that name. Yeah, yeah you've heard yeah. that name. Yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of famous. Yeah, yeah he, he, he shot a picture or two in his day. <laughs> I'll uh, have to thank him one day. But he, you know, he, I, was at, I was actually at one of his conclave workshops, and he was, mm. he was talking about how few of the posed shots that he does. Because, you know, he is... Uh, he he is one of the pioneers of this photojournalism wedding photography sort of genres and he doesn't really get in there and say okay now dad and mom okay now bride and dad you know he doesn't do that stuff so you know I, I've heard a couple of photographers that actually do that I think Joe Busink does that uh-huh. I think Yervon does I think Yervon only shows up to the wedding for like two three hours yeah yeah. you know he just goes out and there and he does his art I think Joe Busink is a second shooter which wow. is really, really interesting. That's you know, interesting. He, so he has, he has, he hires a primary shooter, and then he shows up for flavoring, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you get you get Joe Busing because you want all those really great moments. I mean, that's what he's known for. Yeah. So he goes up there, he does his thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, that doesn't work for me. I just I want to be the guy. I want to make sure. I maybe I'm a control freak. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I just want to know that I'm getting the shot. Yep. You know, but I, I like to interact with people. I like to be behind the camera. I like to be in the forefront of it all. And I like to make things happen. Yeah. So let's let's switch it around and talk a little bit about um, marketing. And, sure. and yeah, I noticed, you know, going through your website in preparation for this interview and, and just sort of Googling Gene Higa, I noticed that there's one sort of element that comes through all the time. Your brand, your font, your the star between your first and last name and all that stuff is really consistent throughout. You want to talk a little bit about how you came to that and where that's going? Um, you know, we started, I used the star, I don't know, I, I just like the star. I mean, it just went well. I, I had a really simple font that was just the Times Roman, put it all in caps, and we used the Dare to be Different underneath it. But um, the little star that we used, we used it in all of our presentations. Um, we had the Tiffany Blue in there, so it was very recognizable for mm-hmm. weddings. Yep. Um, you know, I used that brand, and I'll be honest with you, I'm probably going to come out with a new, well, we are going to come out with a new website probably in a couple of weeks here. We just launched Geneva Workshops, and we actually hired a branding and identity company. Um, the company is called Collective Lines, and we hired them, and she basically told me brand is the essence of you. Yeah. And I really didn't get that. And I was like, wow, you know, that's really great. I'm glad I hired you. <laughs> so she told me about branding and uh, she kind of educated me on everything. And um, she sat there and she interviewed me. When she first came in, she interviewed me for like three hours. Hey, what do you like? How do you dress? What do you drive? What do you like to eat? Who are your friends? Who are your family? Yeah. And she came back to me and she had four concepts. And I thought, wow, that's really great. But that's me. And that's me. And so we put it all together. 
And she came up with this whole concept for me. Everything from stickers to envelopes to the name, the website, the colors, the font. It is very me. So now the new brand that we have, and we actually have it on our blog, which is at genehiga.net. And that brand lives there. And um, it also lives at Genehiga Workshops. Um, we're going to be launching the gallery probably in a couple of weeks. I'm just trying to fill it with content right now. I've had to put it on um, the burner, the back burner for a little bit just to get prepared for WPPI. Yeah. But um, I'm excited about this, and it looks really, really beautiful. Um, my business card is a simple 3x3 three three square. It's got silver foil, and uh, it's Tiffany blue. And it is so me, and it just works. And um, the brides and um, everybody else has really been reacting really good to this. So that's that's sort of that's sort of like a pre-filter, then, right? Because if it's uh, all your materials look cohesive, your business cards feel expensive, and they're printed in Tiffany blue, you, it, people are going to automatically assume, "Wow, this guy's expensive." And if they still <laughs> if they still call, then they're they're pre-filtered, right? <laughs> You know what I tell them? I'm like, please don't lose that card. That cost me a dollar. <laughs> That's awesome. Just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, my, my business cards cost about a dollar each, so I know what you're talking about. Well, there you about. go. There you go. That's great. <laughs> so, so so continuing on to the marketing stuff and through it. So from your experience, you know, speaking to photographers that are just sort of getting into this stuff and and considering building a brand for themselves or just going to go out and have some – some three dollar for five hundred five hundred dollar you know for five hundred business cards printed. What yeah. what should they do? You know what, what are their first steps? Is branding important, or should you just get your name out there and get going as quick as possible and let your art speak for itself? You know, I I, I I'm a businessman before I'm a photographer, right? So I know what I've learned in the business is that if you don't spend at least more than half of your time marketing your business. You know, because you, you want to market your business to give yourself more opportunity to photograph, right? You want to market your business because you want to be in the right position to to meet the right brides, to meet the right vendors. Um, I would say go out there and build yourself a nice brand before you start going out there be, and build a brand that is you. You know, and, you know, my card, it doesn't have a bride on it. It doesn't say photographer. It says principal. Um, it, it conveys a message that I'm, you know, worth more than a buck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, I think there's something to be said about your perceived value. You know, where you want to be in this market. Um, I di- I didn't want to put a bride on it. I I collected lots and lots of cards from photographers, and um, everyone had a bride mm-hmm. on their card, and everybody said photographer, or it was a picture of them with their really nice camera. <laughs> I thought that that thought wow, that's really great for you, but that's just not for me. Yeah. You know, and I knew, you know, so I started going out and collecting cards from things that I aspire to, Vera Wang, you know, um, Cartier. I mean, I went out there and I noticed, I mean, there was a certain look out there. And I said, well, that's what I want for myself. Yeah. You know, but, you know, you got you got to have the basics down with the photography. You got to know your basics. You got to know your exposure. You got to know your posing. You got to get all that dialed in and then you can start breaking the rules. So which is what's what's more important, being a good businessman or being a good photographer? Being a good businessman. Yeah. You know, I, I truly believe that. I, I think you can be a great photographer and no one knows about you. I think you can be an amazing, brilliant photographer. But it's... I just you got to give yourself the opportunity to to photograph, and yeah. that's where all the marketing and the networking and all, that's where all that 
will take you. Yeah, that's funny. I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine, Jim Hyde, who's a mm-hmm. who's an author and uh, and an amateur photographer. And he was, you know, we were talking to actually it was three of us. And he had a friend there who was an aspiring wedding photographer, and mm-hmm. but she didn't believe that marketing was important, or she had sort of discounted it and thought that her work would stand on its own and that she didn't have to necessarily market herself if people saw her work they would understand that she was sort of the 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 cat's meow and they would hire her and my advice to her was basically if if a tree falls in the forest it doesn't necessarily get paid (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely right so you have you have you could be the best photographer in the world or the biggest tree in the forest and if you fall over that doesn't necessarily mean people know about it you have to tell people you gotta tell people and you gotta talk about yourself and you know becker told me a long time ago hey gene if you're not talking about yourself no one else is yeah, you, know, you got to be your own, was, your own, your own biggest fan. You know? You got a man. I mean, without the ego. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. So, absolutely. yeah, I want to. We're going a little long. I want to wrap this up with. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on uh, the recession and how that has affected your business. A, and then the second part of that is how can photographers that are entering into this business right now. Uh, protect against the sort of recession and the the cut down and spending of brides and all that? You know, I definitely felt it. Um, I'm definitely having more price shoppers, if you want to call it that. Um, But I do know that the people who are willing to pay our price, and I'm not saying I'm a high-end wedding photographer, but I am saying that... um, the people who are willing to pay our price. I'll, I'll no say it, Gene. You're, I'll say it. You're a high-end <laughs> wedding photographer. <laughs> I was going to officially okay. stamp you on the forehead as a high-end wedding photographer. Mr. Okay, Mr. Tiffany's it, Blue. It must be true. Mr. <laughs> Tiffany's Blue here. Come on. You're a high-end wedding photographer. <laughs> as long as Fred says it, it must be true. There you go. I said it. I said it. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. <laughs> All right, recession. I mean, yeah. it's. I mean, I sat down with four photographers about a week ago, and that's all they talked about. You know, and I said, you know, you guys have to realize that this is a really, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity, and I guess it's a matter of how you're, you're going to take it. It's it's an opportunity to really build some success. It's an opportunity to kind of get your foot in the door and build your business. Because one of the things that I speak about, and I'll talk about this at WPBI, is that there were some pretty amazing businesses that were built during the recession. Coors being one of them, General Motors, uh, the you know those Herman Miller chairs? Oh yeah, I'm sitting in one right now. Yeah, I'm so am I. I mean, they're... Um, they started during a recession. Winkopedia, Nantucket Nectars, you know, all those companies were started during a recession. Yeah. And now they're multi-million, billion-dollar companies. And I think that goes to show you that there's some opportunity out there. If you do it in the right way and you, and you take the right path and you make the right choices, you can go far during this recession. And a lot of great companies have been built during this time. You know, for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand my thing into um, – going into workshops and start inspiring and going out there and offering more more knowledge to people yeah. you know um, I, t- I took a risk about a year and a half ago and I saw if you want to call it a recession I saw this coming um, just reading papers and blah 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 and I said you know this is probably going to happen and um, <clears throat> I raised my prices pretty dramatically mm-hmm. 
I raised my prices. I went the opposite and everyone else was dropping their prices to get work. But the thing was is that if you drop your prices, it's probably going to take you two, three years to get back to the point where you were when you dropped it. Yeah. And that's pretty hard. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't want to have to fight for all that. So that, did, did, that you, ground you, did you raise your prices in order to have a place to decrease them to so that you decrease back to the level that you were before you raised them? Or, yeah. Okay. I mean, we, we, we took a pretty significant jump, you know. Um, and the, the call stopped for about three months. But after that three months, I mean, we, we got back into our space and I worked on our marketing a lot more. And we went out there and, and, and it's working for us. Yeah. You so know, what? So, I, so what? You know that that part or that marketing. What is the marketing that you do to get the phone ringing, other than referrals from other photographers and referrals from brides that you've already photographed? What do you What do you do to get the phone ringing? What am I doing to get the phone ringing? You know, I mean, it's an oldie but goodie. But I mean, Google AdWords work amazing. You know, I mean, ninety percent of our brides are coming from cold calls. Um, cold calls from their work i mean all my brides emails are from work mm-hmm. um we we hired a branding and identity company we um we, we went out there we shook more hands you know because once you raise your prices you're going to lose your referral base right right yeah, yeah. so once you lose that referral base you kind of have to start from scratch again so we went out there and shook some hands with some coordinators and said hey you know this is my work let me introduce you to my business blah 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 and um I have a coordinator coming tomorrow. She's going to come over with the bride that's get married at Ritz-Carlton, Half Moon Bay. She's got a nice size budget. And um, the last time she came with a bride, the bride hired me in 15 minutes and booked me at 25000 It was amazing. Wow. wow. So she's pre-selling me. And, um, you know, we're just going out there and just shaking more hands and just coming out of non-existence. That's just saying, hey, here we are, and this is our business, and this is what we do, and we'd love to help you out in any way we can. That's great. So, yeah. Gene, so Gene, how if people want to learn more about you and uh, or keep up with you, how how can they follow you or or learn more about your business and services and, and workshops and all that? Um, yeah, well, I guess the new big thing now is Twitter. I'm Gene Higa at Twitter. It's just one word, Gene Higa, all lowercase. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Facebook. Um, I update my stuff probably every couple of hours. I'm pretty addicted to it. But um, my workshops can be found at Gene Higa Workshops. Right now, we're offering a workshop in Tuscany that's going to happen October 25th through the 29th. And I'm doing that with a good friend named Jose Villa, who's a film shooter out of Santa Barbara. Just amazing, amazing guy. And um, we've done local workshops together. But now I think we're going to do something abroad. And we're going to limit that to about 25 people. So we're going to announce that at WPPI. Um, Like we said, we're going to be speaking at WPPI Wednesday the 18th in Studio B, 2.30 to 4.30. Hope to see you guys there. Um, I will be on the trade show floor speaking with all my sponsors. So um, you can find me there. And um, genehiga.net is my blog. Um, My blog right now is just press. I, I only do press on my blog just because I feel if you want to see my work, go to my gallery and that's my website. That's great. You know, I'm kind of old school that way. That's great. You know, and I'm not going to be offended that you haven't friended me on Facebook yet. So. Oh, you're kidding me! <laughs> oh my God, you're 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 not going to believe this. It was so funny. Dane was. I was doing this interview with Dane yesterday, and uh-huh. he says, "Hey, Gene, I'm going to direct message you the password." I'm like, "Okay." He's like, "Oh, I can't direct message you. You're not following me on Twitter." I'm like, "Oh my God, how embarrassing!" <laughs> That's the new. That is the new social faux pas, not to be following people that you're friends with. (laughs) Yeah, and 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 when you're doing interviews on Twip, you know you can't do that. (laughs) Exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. was so bad. I was so embarrassed. I was like, "Oh, Dane, I love you, but I'm sorry." <laughs> That's awesome. You know, Dane was Dane was on uh, Twip a couple weeks ago. We had a, we interviewed him. That was a great interview. Amazing guy. Amazing. Just so much information and so like an open book. You know, it's just really blessed to. This guy has done amazing, amazing things for the industry, and you know the industry is very lucky to have him. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Gene, thanks, thanks so much for taking time this evening to uh, to let me bend your ear and talk your ear off. <laughs> I hope I answered all of your questions. <laughs> you answer, you answered most of them. Uh, yeah, I have a couple more that I'll ask after I click the stop button on this recorder. But <laughs> okay, <laughs> but uh, but thanks a lot, and uh, you know, I enjoyed being here. I really, I mean, this this was the most relaxed interview I've ever done. I, mean, I really enjoyed being here. Thank you so much. Awesome, you're welcome. So that was that was Gene Higa. If you want to learn more about him, you can definitely click on the links in the show notes to uh, check out his newly designed blog and all manner of his work, and especially if you want to hire him or something. But he's a really good photographer. He's a, a very personable person, as you heard, and um, I would now consider him a friend. So let's jump into the listener questions. We got some really good questions here. Uh, the first one is, uh, will lenses be changing due to high ISO capabilities becoming common? This is from uh, listener Shane Abbott. So you want to take this one, uh, Ron? Sure. I mean, I, I think the, the reason he's asking the question is because cameras are getting so much more sensitive and, and able to shoot with less light that you know, there's, there may be a situation where you could claim that you have less of a need for the really fast lenses, the F1.4s and the F2s and that sort of thing. And and if if light control was the only issue there, I think that might be the case. But, you know, part of the reason why we want to have those really wide apertures is to control depth of field as well. So, I mean, it it does make sense that you'll be able to get away with not using lenses that are quite as fast. And there may, may be situations where it makes sense to have that, uh, weight considerations being one of them. Anytime you, you have a lens that is faster, it's almost always a bigger lens, too. It's heavier. You need more glass in it. Yeah. So it, it, it ends up giving us more flexibility, but I don't think generally we would see uh, less of these very fast lenses coming out. And in fact, I suspect that we'll probably see more of them as optical technology continues to get better. And we've got really cool stuff going on with sort of these weird uh, index of refractions and different materials and things like that. I, I suspect we're going to end up seeing faster and faster lenses starting to show up at, at the same yeah. same. And you know, when you, when, you, when you have the quality of, you know, certain legendary lenses and people will talk about their favorite lenses, it's usually very expensive professionals or well-heeled amateurs that use these lenses uh, wide open because of the look that they get from them. It's not even necessarily a question of, of needing um, the wide wide opening but a 200 f2 for example i know in the nikon world many wedding photographers love the quality that that lens brings to their work so i think at the highest level you know people choose the the tool that's going to give them the look that they want and often it's it's a really fast lens like that expensive one too yeah so one other question I want to definitely get to, and this one's this I get this question a lot. It's from Terry Weigant, and Terry says, six months ago I finally made the leap and purchased a Pentax D200. 
since shooting with my DSLR, I find my results aren't just aren't what I expected. Can you recommend a process that you've used that you've used to learn the myriad of settings and results when getting used to a new camera? So that that's an that's an interesting question because I'm still not used to my new <laughs> my new cameras. <laughs> Ron, you want to you want to talk about that a little bit? How do you, when, if you have some new gear, you have a new camera, especially if you're moving into a DSLR from a point and shoot? How do you get used to it aside from the obvious of read the manual? read the manual and shoot a lot. I mean, I, I, I can't say I've done this, but I'm curious if maybe you're really starting out, you want to kind of let the, the pseudo smartness of the camera kind of teach you a little bit. Mm. Take a picture with their full automatic settings and then see what numbers it dialed in and then dial in the same thing yourself and play around with it and see what variations you get. Or set it up what you think the best settings are, take the photo and then turn it over to automatic, take the same photo and once you get back home, you can have the leisure to kind of examine the difference in terms of what you dialed in versus what the the camera thought was the best setting, and and just sort of see, you know, is it is it making a better decision on certain areas, and and you could probably learn something from that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think, Steve? Yeah, I think um, you know the best thing you can probably do is to just pick up that new tool. It's probably going to react much faster and allow you to get um, the kind of images that your point and shoot just wasn't maybe uh, uh, quick enough to to be able to take and and make it easy on yourself. At first, you know, keep it on an automatic setting and and just you know feel free to just explore and 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 make images and and see what you get and uh if there are certain problems like the shutter speed may have been too slow or um you know then you can sort of learn to kind of control the the settings that uh, you know that that are sort of shown by the problems that you got in in the shoot. I yeah. think I see it a lot that people have these these things and they overthink things. And because they have all these new capabilities, they they are are using it to the detriment of their images, and they're not concentrating on making pictures. And the beauty of these uh, you know more advanced DSLRs is it allows you full manual control when you know what you want to do. But for the most part, um, probably for about, even for professionals, you know, 75% of the, the shooting could be, you know, blindly using them on automatic, not blindly, but using them on, a, on automatic with, a uh, you know, an aperture pri priority, for example. You know, I would, you know, if you're outside in daylight, just make sure your shutter speed is fast enough to, to not freeze things and, and just let yourself go and see, to, to freeze things, I mean, and, and let yourself go and see, and see what happens. Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with both of you guys. I I would say to piggyback on that, that you, if you have new gear and you're just moving into the, the realm of digital SLR that you, of course, keep it on the automatic mode while you get your, your, your legs around it and, and understand what the camera's capabilities are and understand how to switch from modes, etc. Uh, or switch, switch between modes. But also, once you feel comfortable, and you know you're you're comfortable with where the the bells and whistles are put it on one of the other modes like for example aperture priority and just shoot on that mode and and feel get the feel of what it's doing and only shoot on that mode and examine your results so it's like a, a science experiment you know you have the control group and the and the two control groups you have the the control group that you know about and the one that you don't know about what you know about is what you did with automatic mode and what you don't know about is this new mode so if you go into that new mode and you start fiddling 
dealing with things, you can sort of get your start getting your brain around what is happening, whether it be the going into aperture priority, shutter priority, etc. So use that automatic setting as a basis and then venture out into new lands. What do you think about that, Aaron? I agree wholeheartedly. And one approach I would recommend taking too is pick out certain styles of photography um, or certain techniques that you see. Uh, find out because you know there's plenty of information online about techniques and, and you know tutorials and so on. And embark on trying to recreate some of those. I mean, uh, shallow depth of field, for instance, which was one of our sh- challenges not long ago. Set out for a while to to just do that type of thing. You know, learn some online about what some of the techniques are for that, and then try and create images that fit that particular style. Um, and on the flip side if you're not doing that on purpose but you're finding a lot of variation in your photographs like why is the depth of field shallow in this one for instance or why is the exposure look the way it does in here analyze your photos themselves and compare them to other photos of yours and see what the differences are i mean you've got all the exif data there so you can see everything that took place when you took that picture and start getting a sense you know the process that's a huge point the exif data is so uh fantastic to to have it embedded in every image you take so you yeah. can look for sort of common things that you've done uh it may just be something as simple as your shutter speed was just one too slow to really get you what you got in the more successful uh images the other one tip that i would give is most of these cameras come with zoom lenses i would encourage people to use the lenses racked to either the um telephoto extreme or the wide extreme and then just leave them there and move yourself around as opposed to use the zoom because I think it's just a, qu- a, a case of too many choices um, that some of these cameras uh, uh, allow you to the detriment ultimately of the images that you're going to make. Yeah. All excellent points. So uh, coming up in the uh, in, in the interim between these between the TWIP shows, I think we're going to continue to insert videos that uh, Alex and Scott and team shot while out at PMA. I don't think they've all been inserted yet, but uh, we've got a lot of positive responses on putting those videos in there. So we're going to continue to do that and uh, let you guys see what the what the gear and the services and all that good stuff that they experienced out at PMA were. So. And please keep sending your feed, your feedback into us. We we definitely read all that stuff. And that what's that address, Aaron? Uh, the email address is twippodcast at gmail dot com. So, and keep in mind that's two p's in the middle. So t w i p p o d c a s t at gmail dot com. And to close it off, uh, tip of the week. Uh, this is this is a good response from the the Twip community. This is from a listener by the name of Al. He says, "Hey gang, I love your show." He was listening to the last Twip podcast on the way home from work, and we uh, we answered a listener question that he wanted to answer, answer some advice on. So we have our listeners answering listener questions as well. He said the listener uh, that he's referring to said they went to Spain and took all their photos at low resolution JPEG. And our responses on what to do were more or less cry, which is pretty much true. Uh, He wanted to offer some thought and he said, I was giving it some thought and wanted to suggest that all is not lost for that listener. Instead of thinking about blowing those, blowing one of those uh, low resolution images up to a larger size, like eight by 10 or something, maybe you might want to make a collage or a montage of the images in the space of a larger image. So like a picture story or something. 
And he also says he can, he suggests using a site like blurb.com to put them together in a, a montage or something and, and or reproduce them at a smaller size, like four by six. So that was from listener Al. Thank you for for helping us out and giving somewhat more positive feedback than what we gave, which was uh, if you shot on low, there's there's not a whole lot of not, there's not a whole lot you can do to blow that image up aside from using some uh what, what what are those kind of those plugins for photoshop those fractal enlargement pro programs from extensive that sort of thing fractals, yeah 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 those those will help out but they, they can't make something from nothing but and that's it that's it for this episode of this week in photography uh ron brinkman where can people follow you or find you uh they can find me on twitter and follow me on twitter this is Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N, all one word. I want to do uh, one one quick coda. I just thought of something about that Backblaze that I mentioned. I believe yep. it's still in beta on the Mac. Uh, it's it's released on the PC, but I think you have to get an invite code on the Mac uh, to try it. I know we got a lot of Mac listeners, so I don't want people to be showing up at my doorstep with pitchforks and torches saying I can't get to it. But you know, feel free to <laughs> send an email to Backblaze saying you want it released on the Mac and that you heard about it on, on Twip. That would be fine, too. Excellent. I got mine within a few days, Ron, just to mention. I signed up on it, and, and just yesterday Amazing. I got it. So I'd say there's only four or five days between my request and receiving a beta code. Okay. Good. Okay. Aaron Mailer, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at uh, HalfPress, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S, and, of course, on my blog as well at HalfPress.com. And Mr. Steve Simon, where can people find you? Uh, well, if you go to NameYourDreamAssignment.com, and in the search, if you put in Steve Simon, you'll find my grandmother's spirit um, proposal. It's got 33 picks. I think the leading one has like 700 picks. Wow. So vote, vote for me if you like the idea, and then enter your own idea. And Twitter me at Steve Simon, uh, or Twitter uh, slash Steve Simon, and uh, tell me about yours, and I'll look at it. And if I think it's good, I'll, I'll vote for you, too. Excellent. And you can find me at on Twitter as well at twitter.com slash Frederick Van, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K-V-A-N, or on my blog at frederickvan.com, or on my little TV site, frederickvan.tv. So that's it for this week in photography. It's time to take that lens cap off. 